Amen. Thanks, Pastor Matt. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, do you, do you have to be Irish to sing that last song? I, I, I felt like I immediately turned Irish, and I, I felt like I wanted to talk. I'll stop there. But uh, that was great. And it, uh, it really speaks to what we're about as a church family. If you have a Bible, would you turn in that Bible to Revelation chapter 3? If you don't have a Bible, would you raise your hand and one of our ushers would be happy to bring you a Bible. If that's your first one that you've ever had, we want you to keep that, uh, underline in that, write your name in that, and bring it back when you return to hear God's Word. Uh, here at Urban Grace, that's a great value for us uh, to, to preach from the Bible. We believe this is Jesus' Word. We're in a series on Revelation. Um, this is actually the, the second to last one. Uh, there are seven messages in this particular part of this particular book uh, that are to various churches throughout what have, would have been Asia, now Asia, then Asia Minor, now modern Turkey. Uh, they still exist uh, very much uh, in terms of uh, the ruins of the city, and some of these cities are built on top of these ruins and these cities, but these are physical uh, locations that actually exist on this planet. And here's the cool thing about these particular messages is that Jesus wanted every particular church to hear every other message. So there's seven messages to seven churches, but in every single church and every single message, Jesus says to that particular church, he who has ears or she who has ears, let them hear. Meaning like, it, can you listen up? It doesn't matter if you're not from this church, I want you to hear the message from this church. Which is exactly why we're preaching through this. Because we believe that 2,000 years later, we are still supposed to listen to these particular messages. Now you'll notice that some of them are very specific if you've been with us for a while. You'll notice that there are, there are some specific geographical um, idiosyncrasies, I guess, of each particular church. And yet there's some very positive and, and very general applications that we can make from them. And so we're in church number six, the church in Philadelphia, and not the one in Pennsylvania, by the way. Uh, this is actually, um, uh, let me pull up my, my map. Here, here, here's where we are in the particular geography. So we've started uh, right about here in Ephesus. Uh, the, the letter itself, the letter written by a man who's exiled on this. He used to be a pastor of Ephesus. But if you'll notice, there's kind of a, a circular uh, idea behind even how the, the church letters are written. You start in Ephesus, Smyrna, Thi uh, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis last week, and then Philadelphia and Laodicea. It's almost like the angel of God is hovering over Asia Minor. He's visiting all these different churches and he's giving them emails and updates from the district superintendent called Jesus Christ that says, here's what I see in each one of these churches and here's what I want you to pay attention to. But he says, I want you, everyone to hear exactly what's going on in every particular city. And so before we read the text, I want to tell you a little bit about this city. As I, I began uh, about three weeks ago, I guess, I, I broke out this idea that each particular church has, has a, a, a kind of ethos because that particular city has an ethos. I believe that's true even today. That the church in Calgary will have a different feel than the church in Edmonton. I'm talking about capital C church. And when I say capital C church, I mean the gathering of all the people who love Jesus. Okay, I'm not talking just you know, a particular denomination. I'm talking about those who truly follow Jesus. The Bible sometimes calls us the unseen church. 
Okay, and each, each city will have a particular ethos, and each ethos will affect what the church looks like in that particular city, how, how it's affected. And I tell you what, if you go to anywhere in the world and you go into their church service, you, you often will feel like, this is, this is weird, this is not like the way we do it. It's because every church has its own idiosyncrasies, every city has its own idiosyncrasies, and so does Philadelphia. Philadelphia, let me describe this. The, the one word that could be used to describe Philadelphia is, is paranoia. Uh, Philadelphia is a city that's, that's at this time lies west of Smyrna. And so as you, as you go further and further inland, um, you have the potential more and more of earthquakes. And, and this still happens today. It's a very unstable area of that particular country. Susceptible to earthquakes all the time. And you can imagine modern day Technology allows kind of the, uh, uh, the softening of the blow of earthquakes, but in those days, everything's made of rock. And as you well know, in an earthquake, rock's a pretty dangerous thing to be under or near because it could crack, it could topple. So the city is constantly in this state of paranoia. Out of all the cities that we know about, this city is probably the newest. And so it has, and, and probably for that reason, you know, I wonder who the first genius was who built the city on top of a fault line. Not exactly, you know, brain surgery, right? But this, this is what happened, is this city repeatedly faced uh, earthquakes. There was an enormous earthquake in AD 17. So just barely before Jesus r- really uh, shows himself and reveals who he is, this city goes through an enormous earthquake and it destroys just about everything. It was so destructive to the city that the emperor literally said, you guys don't have to pay tax for five years because I know you're going to need funds to rebuild your city. So what you have is this paranoid city. And then in AD 23, another earthquake. And so by the time we get to this letter, which is about AD 90, you have an entire city that is looking over their shoulder wondering when the next earthquake is going to come. It's like a daily occurrence from them. Every time... They hear a rumble. I don't think they'd hear the rumble of an enormous truck going by, but you can imagine they're, they're sitting in their homes and, and something falls and breaks. And what, what, what would they think? Earthquake. Got to get out of here. In fact, what happened is the city eventually, most of the people went out and lived on farms in the plains because at least there no rocks could fall on them. I'll, I'll tell you why this is important as we kind of go along. So as, as you can plainly see, um, Philadelphia is this paranoid sort of city, easily spooked, sort of, sort of, so to speak. There's a small group of Christians here, and there's actually quite a large group of, of Jews. Now, if some of you don't know this, I will explain this. Christianity finds its roots in the Jewish religion. And so as Christianity grows, and, and, and this is still, by the way, point of contention between Jews and Christians, if you ask, um, what's some of the major problems that the Jewish culture has with Christianity? It's the fact that Christians rip off their history. They don't really care for that. They're like, fine, you can do your Christian thing, but don't, don't do things like take all of our scriptures and use them as if they were talking about your Savior. It, it is honestly still a point of contention today. But in that time, you can imagine how heated this would be. Well, Christians are saying that Jesus, who is Jewish, is the Messiah. He's the one that the whole Scriptures have been writing about. And Jews say, no, the Messiah has not yet come. 
And so there's this little tiny church of persecuted Christians, and actually, there's a, a group of Jews, a large synagogue, that also has a problem with this. And so the reason why all this is important will become evident later on. But let me read the text for you. Starting in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and shuts, or who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those a synagogue of Satan, those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Here's some of this language already that's starting to make sense. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. So hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He or she who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's three kind of groups of things that we see in the text. We see, first of all, that, that we, we have, and, and these are all encouragements, by the way. It's the first time in any of the letters that, that everything is positive, right? Nothing negative in the email, so to speak. And so what we see is, is that there are three groups of things that Jesus wants to say. He first wants to talk about their power and influence in the proclamation of what we would call the gospel, what Matt described, this, this news, this message. And then we also see that this is about vindication and protection. That it's Jesus who will pay back. And then the third thing that we see is that this is about security and status. True security and true status. So let's start with the first, uh, power and influence. Power and influence. Jesus' encouraging words are that He is the one who will deal with the power and He is the one who will deal with the influence. There's tr tremendous importance. And as I said, this is what it says when it says, uh, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. What Jesus is not saying to this church is, I know that if you could just get more power, uh, you would be more effective. He's actually saying, I know that you have little power, little influence. That's why I put influence instead of power. You ever felt like you've been part of a church or part of a group that has little influence? Right? You've been part of a grassroots sort of idea that, that just has very little influence. That's what this church feels like. They're already paranoid that everything's going to fall apart at any moment. But they're also a small church. And I tell you what, we live in a city that's full of large churches and it's very easy for us collectively, corporately, communally as a church to feel like we have very little influence in the city. Ever felt that way? 
You ever felt like you're part of a group where you just don't have the influence that you'd like to have and you say, if our company was only bigger, if our family was only bigger, if we were only more powerful and more important in this particular group, then I could really move and do something. You know, churches feel that way too. People feel that way too. Perhaps you're here this morning and you say, I don't really have a lot of power or influence. I don't know the right people. I don't have the right gifts. I don't have a lot of money. I don't have a lot of resources. I'm not really that involved and I'm not the kind of person that could really take this to the next level. Perhaps that you, that's you this morning. Perhaps you feel about our church that we're just, we're not there yet. We, we have so far to go and, and, and one day maybe that, that God will use this church in a super influential way, but we have to get to this particular size. And I think the first thing that this text says is that Jesus is in charge of a church's influence. Such an important, encouraging word for us. You look around and you ever feel discouraged, you can remember this encouraging word that no matter what our size, no matter what our ability or gifts, it's Jesus who is in charge of our influence. See that open door? Jesus is the one who opens and closes the door. That language is used all over the New Testament. When the very first missionary, Paul, moves into a new area, he prays, Holy Spirit, create an open door for me for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to move. That's what we pray for all the time. Sometimes I I, I feel like, this is such good news. How come more people don't want to know about this good news? And so we pray, Jesus, open a door, open our hearts. Have you ever prayed that? You ever felt that? Jesus, open my eyes to this because I can't see it. I'm hung up on some sort of doubt, some sort of sin, some sort of lack of hope, something. And you want Jesus to open a door. Well, I'll tell you what it's not dependent on. The size of your church. The amount of your gifts. The people you know. Unless that person that you know is Jesus Christ. I love this about the text. What else does he say? That he determines the influence regardless of the size. I know you have but little power. You can imagine maybe how this feels. You're up against a religion that has existed for well over 2,000 years already. They've got an enormous synagogue They've got an established place to meet. They've got a building. I mean, just that word just makes me want to cringe right now because I so desperately want a great building. I don't know if you've ever felt this as a church. You know, I love this church. Man, it'd be great if you had a building. Please continue to pray for that. I think about that a lot. We're asking to pray for that. And it's hard when you see other churches or other organizations that don't necessarily work for Jesus and they have these beautiful facilities. You get so jealous and so like, Jesus, do you not, how could you not put us in that? Are we not part of the extension of your kingdom? Are we not preaching your good news? How come they have that and we don't? So you can imagine how these people felt. They're up against synagogue. Here's what Jesus ends up saying. It's a synagogue of Satan. That's really, that's, that's, quite, that's quite powerful, wouldn't you say? Jesus says, They aren't the ones who open the doors. 
They aren't the ones who close the doors. It's me. I open up a way for your influence. I give you influence. I give you opportunities. The gospel will go out and people will hear it when I allow it to happen, not when you just get better at your dog and pony show. Such an encouragement because so many of us, myself included, are bent. We have a proclivity towards doing a better dog and pony show. If we can just have better blank, then we can really take over the city. Then we can really see your kingdom come. And Jesus said, not true. Not true. You're not in charge of that. I love this. He steals from like very Jewish writings. Not an accident, by the way. If you were Jewish and you heard this, all you hear is condemnation. You're like, you call yourselves Jews, but you missed the Savior of the Jews. You think you've got this great building. You don't. You're a synagogue. You're a building whose CEO is my enemy. And I love the way Jesus talks about himself. We learn stuff about him. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one's will shut, who shuts and no one's open. That is stolen directly from the book of Isaiah. By the way, very important book to anyone with Jewish heritage. And I know it sounds really anti-Semitic, doesn't it? Strangely anti-Semitic. It's not based upon ethnicity. It's based on, based on the truth that Jesus claims to be the Savior of all people. And it's stolen from this story in Isaiah about a person who holds the key to the king's palace and inner court. And the book of Isaiah talks about a person who will be given a key, who will give, be given access inside to the most powerful person in the country. And Jesus says, guess who's the gatekeeper? All I can think of when I hear that is Princess Bride. Ever think of, see Princess Bride? I mean, some of you, it's like, this is so old. Spoiler alert, there's, there's a great part. Hey, we got a young person who's watched Princess Bride. Classic. First movie I ever saw in a theater. Just dated myself. Really bad. But there's a, there's a part in that where it says, who owns the key to this particular gate? And the, the gatekeeper says, what key? And then the big thug says, you know, Isaac, tear his head off. And, and he goes, oh, oh you mean this, this key? It's almost as Jesus is saying to this people, oh, you mean this key, the key to every expansion of what's happening. I hold it, he says. I'm in charge. It's a word of encouragement for us when we feel like we hardly have anything to work with. When we're paranoid that we're not sure this thing will last. When we need waking up, as Julie said. What else? is said. It's an encouragement that Jesus will vindicate and Jesus will protect. That's the next couple of verses. It says, Behold, I will make those who are synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn what I have lo- that I have loved you. Super powerful. 
basically throughout the story of God, basically from about here, from here to here, there's a story about how the Savior of the world will actually come from Jewish heritage. And then he shows up. His name is Jesus. God become man. He's called the Messiah. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus was his human name. Christ literally means Messiah. So it's like his name is the Messiah. So it, it would literally be as if Trevor the Messiah. It's Jesus the Messiah. It, 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 it's a fulfillment of the whole story of God. And what Jesus says is that in spite of the fact that I come from Jewish heritage, in spite of that fact, Jews will now come to sit at the feet of Christians for the answer to the Savior of the world. I mean, powerful statement. I mean, as I'm reading this, I'm literally thinking, Jesus, you're either correct or you're extremely arrogant and crazy. You ever think that? I mean, I feel like Jesus lays this out for us, that he doesn't, he's not just a good teacher for us. He's not just someone who shows us some moral principles that help us live better lives. He makes enormous statements that are either extremely racist or he's right. Because for many, their heritage would have given them a platform to be like, no, no, you come, we've got the truth. Right? Sometimes even as churches, we, just, we sit here and we say, we've got the truth. If you want to hear about it, come and see us. But Jesus says, no, actually the truth will come from you. And I think this is actually specific. This actually happened. Where the word to this church was, these people are going to come to you for the truth. They're going, to come to, they're going to learn it from you. They're going to literally be bowing at your feet asking you to tell them about this. And remember, at the time that this is said, this has not happened yet. This is a promise. But it's a reminder that this is the business that Jesus is in. He is in the business of paying back. He is in the business of vindicating. That's actually what that word means. Jesus vindicates. I want to tell you a story about this, this idea of God vindicating. Such an important story for me. If you've ever felt like you've wanted to gain revenge, can, any, can you be honest and see? I would like to pay someone back for something. Anyone? Right? Only two of you. Good. I want to pay you other people back for not telling me the truth. Right? We all have this in us, even when we watch a movie and you see the, the guilty person get away with it and the, and the innocent person get punished, right? You kind of want to secretly go, oh, I hope that person gets paid back. Or, or I've said this often, you're on the deer foot and you're, you're driving, you're doing the speed limit and someone tears past you, you're like, man, I just hope there's a cop up there who gets them. You want to pay back. Right, that's in us. That's, that's kind of in the image of God in us. We want to make sure that wrong things are, are punished and, and disciplined and, and we want to pay things back. This is a reminder that we don't do the paying back. We don't get to do this. We don't tell other people, you come to us for the truth. Jesus tells other people, you go to them for the truth. We named our oldest child Dinah 
I don't know if you know the story of Dinah. You may not. Super powerful story. Two reasons why we named Dinah Dinah. Number one, it sounded good. I thought. Number two, I love the story behind it. We love the story behind it. It's a mutual decision. Here's the short form of the story of Dinah. Dinah is actually one of the sisters of the 12 tribes of Israel. So if you read in the Old Testament, you see all these different tribes and the way that all of the land that they're given is divided up and the way it's organized and the way it's led. It's all about 12, 12, 12, 12, 12. 12 tribes, everything. The specific names. Some tribes are more powerful than others, but there's actually some sisters involved. They weren't all just brothers. There's some sisters, and one of those sisters was Dinah. And there's a story of Dinah, whereby Dinah is a beautiful young woman, and some stranger from another country with different, uh, a different religion decides he, he, she's very appealing to him. And so he, the Bible says he takes advantage of her, which is the the kind of the, the dumbed-down way of saying he raped her. There's some translations that would say he raped her. He sexually took advantage of her. Made the brothers mad. You don't say. I never grew up with sisters, but if that ever happened to my sister, somebody's got to pay. You know how that feels. So the brothers concoct this plan. They say... Um, well, there's a weird tradition in our family. You can, have, you can marry our sister if you just submit yourself to this tradition of ours. What's that tradition? I don't, I don't know how this got past the next level, but they said circumcision. Can you imagine that being the entry payment to the club that you join? Like, how do I get in this club? Circumcision. Yeah, I think I'll find another club. But, but the guy says, yes, I love this girl so much. Sure, why not? They said, no, 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 no. Not you, your whole tribe. You all need to get circumcised if you want to take our sister as your wife. It's like, okay, sounds like a fair trade. <laughs> and I can see all the other people who follow this leader going, are you kidding me? But they do. They all get circumcised. And the Bible literally says, while they were sore, I'm like, Wow, they were sore. Okay. That's a gentle way to put it. While they were sore, brothers come in and deplete the whole tribe. Kill them. Because they're sitting down pretty defenseless. Let me just say that. What does the name Dinah mean? God's in charge of paying back. God actually punished those brothers. He said, there's certain things you're not going to do because you did it. But here's what I love. You protected. And the story is told and the name Dinah literally means God vindicates. And I remember reading that story. I actually did a paper on it in seminary. Because I said, there's going to be a lot of times in my life, in Leslie's life, where we're going to want to get back at people for the hurt that they've done to us. There's going to be something inside of them that just secretly will hope that those people get what's coming to them. I mean, maybe you've never done anything externally about this, but I'm sure in your heart, you've secretly gone, I hope they get what's coming to them. Our world would call it karma. It's not karma. Because God vindicates. 
This is Jesus saying, I am the one in charge of vindicating. You don't need to get mad. You don't need to pay back. You don't need to devise a plan like these brothers did. You don't need to try and get back for me. I don't need defending. I will vindicate. I will pay right for wrong. I will do this. Ultimately, the best picture of vindication is Jesus Christ on the cross. It's the best picture we have of it. You want to know how God feels about sin? You want to know whether he feels that inside of himself? Like, I have to pay for wrong? He says, I will, except I just won't put it on you. I will put it on my own son, and he will bear the brunt of all my vindication. It's a good word for us. That Jesus is the one who will vindicate. But it says, not only that, he will also protect. These passages are so rich. It's really hard to get everything out of here on Sunday morning. He says, he also will protect. He says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. You see, there's there's another picture for those who are not on the winning side here. For those who have not given their lives to Jesus, who do not believe in, in, in Jesus being the, the vindicated one on our behalf. And I, I'm not totally sure exactly what that passage means. I'll, I'll be honest with you. And there's a lot of variety, different ways of understanding those kinds of things. Whether that trial is like a worldwide trial, whether this is the end times, you would know it as the apocalypse, right? We hear that. It's very popular nowadays to have all kinds of movies about the apocalypse. I don't know what that's going to look like. But here's what Jesus says. If you trust in me, you won't have to face it. He doesn't say we're going to eliminate all trials and tests from your life. No, that's not true. In fact, what you have to know is that you will face certain trials, certain tribulations, certain suffering, certain persecution. Those aren't to punish you. Those are to test the quality of your faith. Not for Jesus, but for you. He wants to give you an opportunity. If you say, I believe in Jesus, I trust in Jesus, He is everything to me, Jesus wants to help you understand whether or not you actually believe that. So He'll send suffering, testing, trial your way. That's how we're supposed to see trials. It reveals what's the content and the quality of your faith. That's what it's for. Not for him, for us. And you know this if you face suffering. You're like, you find out what you really believe when you face testing. When you have to go write an exam, you find out what you actually know. Not what you think you know, not what you should know, but what you actually know. That's what a test is for. Jesus said there's one trial that's coming that's going to test everyone across the world. He says, you church in Philadelphia, because you have trusted me and been found that you believe in me, I'm going to save you from this. The reality of this whole book of Revelation is a scary book. It is, in a sense, written to, to help give us this holy 
respectful awe of God as the, not just the creator of the universe, but the judge of the universe. And I'm not harsh when I say this, but regardless of where you are with Jesus, there's one day where you're going to find out what you actually believe. And last week's message was, perhaps it's sooner than later. In fact, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And it doesn't matter how well in advance we know that we're going to die. For some reason, it always comes too quick, doesn't it? When we know that people are going to pass away, and I said this last week, my father-in-law, I saw him passing away. I saw him getting sick. I knew that eventually he's going to die, and it happened so fast for me and for us. Way too fast. I think that's what Jesus is trying to say. I am coming soon. Meaning, you may not have as much time as you think to realize this. But he says, when you trust in me, you're never going to have to face what those who don't believe in me will have to face. Isn't that an encouraging word? For those of us who, who are like, well, Everything for everyone else is going great, and for me, it's not going that well. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but if you believe in me, you're never going to have to face the worst that that this world will have to face. He's going to protect you. And so what does he say? He says, I am coming soon, so hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Lots of imagery in that. This word hold fast doesn't mean much to us because we're not sailors, right? You're not a sailor, not a sailing crowd, I'm assuming, generally speaking. Some of you have been, been on boats, but not really sailing. This idea hold fast. For sermon purposes, I researched one of my favorite movies, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, right? Really scholarly, technical, hard work. It's one of my favorite movies in the whole world. Try to read the book, doesn't work. The book is really hard to read. But the movie, I mean, Russell Crowe, I mean, what do I have to say there? And there's this one part of Master and Commander where they're going into battle. And you see this old man who, for the most part in the movie, and this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, most part in the movie, he's brain dead. They do brain surgery on this guy and he doesn't say anything. But here's what happens. As they move into battle, and as everyone's getting terrified, he holds up his hands, and what you see on his hands are tattooed, hold fast. And he says in his, I don't know, Scottish, English, Irish, whatever it is, British, hold fast. What does that even mean? Well, literally, this is what it means. To many sailor folk, the meaning of hold fast is obvious enough. But those whose ears aren't trained to it, it might sound a contradiction. On board, a line, a rope, is fast when it is firmly and positively secured. It's a rope. It's tied to the deck, tied to the rigging. It's secure. It literally means Find something secure and don't let go of it. I love that image. And this is what Jesus says. Hold fast to me. Grab hold of me. Hold tightly. 
I mean, that's one of the reasons why we gather on a Sunday morning is literally all I'm trying to get across is, friends, Jesus is the answer, hold fast. He's ultimately secure. He's the only secure thing. I mean, I think about our culture right now. Is there another word that describes our city like instability right now? How many of you have wondered whether your job is secure? You don't have to put up your hand. How many of you wondered if you can stay in this city? How many of you wondered that if your job goes, so does your home, so does your lifestyle, so does your friends? I mean, I thought about it. I've wondered, Jesus is, 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 how secure is this? And Jesus says, don't hold fast to your job. Don't hold fast to your church size. Don't hold fast to anything else. Here's what you've got to hold fast to. And this is the last point, and we'll close with this. Hold to real security and hold to real status. That's the next part of the text. This is what Jesus said. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. You can read that as him or her. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write my name on Uh, write on him or her the name of my God and the name of the city my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. This is what he says. Hold on to this. When you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are literally built as a rock in God's house. That's the image you're supposed to get. For all Jews, the temple is the center point of community. The temple is the place that brings the most security. Why do you think there was so much instability about what was going to happen when the temple was destroyed? Why do you think the first thing that emperors did when they tried to go after a city was they tried to take down the temple because that was the most secure point in culture? And Jesus says, it's not a building anymore. You're living in a place full of earthquakes. I'm not making pillars out of rock. I'm making them out of you. And you are going to be a pillar in my temple. You ever think about that? That God's design for your life is to be the establishment, a representation of his establishment on earth. So that when people say, how do we know God exists? You can say, because, look at me. Look what Jesus has done with me. Look what I used to be into what I am now. Look, if he can save me, he can save anyone. What else does Jesus say? He says, I'll write my name on you and I'll make you a citizen in my new city. Again, if you go like, what, what, what would be secure for these people? It would be Jerusalem. Jerusalem would be the key city. The key city. He says, no, no, no. We're not going to rebuild Jerusalem in the same way. We're going to make a new Jerusalem one day. And you're going to be a citizen and your name will be written on the citizen logs of the new Jerusalem. Forget the old Jerusalem, friends. You don't need the old Jerusalem. You belong to a new city. Friends, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you are now a citizen of a brand new city. If you want to read about that city, it's later on in in Revelation. 
Jesus lays this down. This city is amazing. It's far better than any city. Some of us, we don't like cities all that much. I'll tell you, this is a city that's, that's enormous and got a beautiful garden right in the center. Green space. It's got everything. It's the best city around. Everything will be redeemed. Everything will be paid back. No tears. No shame. No lack of hope. You don't even need power in this city because Jesus Christ himself sits in the middle and he provides the light with his awesomeness. Just his awesomeness. It's amazing. What's more amazing, it seems, is that he invites us to believe in him and become one of his citizens in his city. I go back to how this church might felt when they first started hearing, oh great, here's Jesus. He's made his rounds. Angel of the Lord, yep, you guys don't have your act together. You know, you're still writing your worship songs with crayons and overheads. You got nothing going for you. And instead they hear, you're a pillar. You're a citizen of the new city. People will come to you for the truth. It doesn't matter about your size. It doesn't matter about your influence. I do all the door opening. I tell you, it's a pretty good word. Pretty encouraging word. And the invitation is the same for us. The invitation is the same for us. We have this little celebration we call the family meal. And this is what this is a celebration of. We're citizens in a new city. We're pillars in the temple of God. We're loved and protected by our Savior. We believe in a God who will vindicate everything and has vindicated for us on our behalf. We're part of a family. We're children of a God who does not rely on our size or our gifting or our influence or charisma for influence. I tell you, it just should bring joy and tears to our eyes. That this is our Savior. This is what we celebrate. And so I'll invite the band to come. And as the band comes, I just want you to reflect on the great opportunities that you and I have. And as you take, and here's what these symbols mean for us, the bread represents the flesh. It represents a God who does not just sit in a throne and vindicate from there, but he came to us and in fact became the penalty for our sin, the ways we have rejected God, the ways God should really have paid us back with death. But he didn't. He chose to put that on his son. And that's represented by the bread. What's also represented by the cup is the blood that he shed to do it. That he just didn't come and live as an example and then magically poof away and avoid all suffering. He died. He almost bled to death for our behalf. So let's celebrate that together.